bringing you the latest in tax credit news. This is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today's Tuesday, March 2nd, 2021. The focus for today's podcast is the ever-increasing use of the 4% low-income housing tax credit, often referred to as the LIHTC or LITEC, in tax-exempt private activity bonds. They're used together to finance the construction and renovation of affordable rental housing. Now, the rapid use of this financing structure really began back in 2016. That's when bond financing for residential rental housing more than doubled from $6.6 billion to $14 billion. And since 2016, the amount of private activity bond use for residential rental housing has continued to rise. Now, this is in spite of the adverse effects of the 2017 tax bill and other financing challenges. Now, with the recent enactment of a 4% floor for the long housing tax credit, we expect to see a surge in this financing activity, and maybe we're already seeing it now. Now, to discuss this rental financing structure, we're very fortunate to have joining us today my partner, Dirk Wallace. Now, Dirk is in Novogratz's Dover, Ohio office, and his many areas of expertise include helping developers apply for tax credits and to access taxes and bond issuance authority. Dirk also helps with financial modeling and, of course, prepares tax returns and audit and audits financial statements for developer and syndication clients. Now, many of you know Dirk already, or at least you know of him as Dirk is a frequent speaker at Novogratz Housing Conferences, and he leads Novogratz's Low-Income Housing Tax Credit Working Group. Dirk brings an informed, well-rounded perspective of what developers and investors need to know about private activity bonds and the 4% Low-Income Housing Tax Credit. Now, Dirk, as of I, has been getting a lot of questions about the new 4% minimum rate and, more particularly, its effective date. To that end, Dirk did lead an effort by the Novogratz-led Low Income Housing Tax Credit Working Group to draft and submit to the IRS a request for guidance on the 4% floor. Now, if you'd like to see a copy of that letter, simply Google or Bing Novogratz Working Group IRS 4%. Got that? Novogratz Working Group IRS 4%. You Google that, it'll take you right to the letter. Now, to tackle today's topic, we're going to separate this discussion into two parts. We're going to start with a basic overview of the rental financing structure that combines private activity bonds with the 4% low income housing tax credit. From there, we'll talk about why we're seeing this steady increase in the use of the structure and the underpinnings of why we expect to see a surge, if not already experiencing one, in 4% credit use. And of course, what that surge means for developers, investors, and most importantly, those in search of affordable rental housing. So as you can see, we have a lot of interesting ground to cover today. So if you're ready, let's get started. So Dirk, thank you very much for joining us today. Now I wanna start with a basic overview of productivity bonds combined with the 4% low income housing tax credit. Now I imagine that our listeners have varying levels of experience when it does come to working with productivity bonds and the 4% low income housing tax credit. Some, maybe many, have been involved in several, multiple, I should say, privativity bond 4% local tax credit financings, while still others may only have experience with the 9% competitive light tech financing approach and look and learn more about privativity bonds. And still others may not have experience with either tax credit financing tool. So we want to make sure that our listeners have a solid foundation for today's discussion. So we need a bit of a level setting, if you will. So if you could provide a general summary of the local housing tax credit and the differences between the 4% and the 9% credit, that would be very helpful. And then obviously touching upon the role of private activity bonds in assessing 4% credits. Sure. And uh, thanks, Mike, for having me on the podcast today. 
Uh, you know, I figured we would start off kind of at a 30,000 foot uh, view of the loan housing tax credit. Many of you know that the loan housing tax credit is generated based on the amount of expenditures or eligible expenditures that are spent on a property. So a lot of times people refer to it as an expenditure based credit. Uh, the tax credit does give investors a dollar for dollar reduction of their federal tax credit li- or their federal tax liability. And in exchange, the investors will contribute capital in order to help finance the affordable housing development. So this investor capital that's contributed uh, works to subsidize uh, the loan housing tax credit development uh, so units can be uh, more affordable and we can charge rents that are below market rents. The tax credit that an investor receives is on an annual basis, and this tax credit is generally received over a 10-year period. Now, there are two types of loan housing tax credits. Uh, the first tax credit is what we call the 4% tax credit or the 30% present value credit, as it's technically called in the code. And then there's also the 9% credit or the 70% present value credit. Now, in order to qualify for the 4% credit, uh, the 4% credit is actually generated in conjunction with the issuance of tax-exempt private activity bonds. So as long as 50% or more of your property is financed by tax-exempt bonds, then you can receive a tax credit up to 4% of the eligible expenditures. Now, an applicant will submit an application for these private activity bonds, and in some states, they'll have to submit a separate application for the tax credits. The private activity bonds themselves are allocated to each state on a per capita basis, and these bonds can be used for many things, uh, including multifamily housing, which is the industry that uh, we're talking about today. The 4% credits in the private activity bonds, they can be used to finance new construction or act rehab. There isn't a limitation on, on one or the other. Now, conversely, the 9% tax credits cannot be used with taxes and private activity bonds. An applicant will apply directly with the state housing uh, finance agency, and the applicant will apply just for the tax credits, not for um, any sort of taxes and private activity bonds. Now, the 9% uh, tax credit will generate more credits than a similar 4% property, given that the 9% credit is based on 9% of the eligible expenditures, where the 4% credit is just based on 4%. Now, given the limited supply and the fact that it can generate more credits, the 9% tax credit is highly competitive in most states and is generally oversubscribed three or four to one. Thank you for that overview, Dirk. That was uh, very helpful. And I will note, uh, as our listeners know, that was a very high level, 30,000 foot overview. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) There's a lot of details uh, for those of you that are uh, running numbers and the rest. That's obviously what Dirk spends a lot of his time digging through those details for clients. But that was a great overview. And there's much more than that that we uh, don't have time to cover in a podcast. Uh, But I did want to let our listeners know that there are several resources to learn more about the basic mechanics of 4% credits combined with private activity bonds. For example, Novogratic is hosting a live webinar on how to finance properties with long-term tax credits and private activity bonds. This uh, live webinar is going to be held in two weeks. This webinar is going to cover the various roles involved in issuing private activity bonds and different bond structures and the like. Uh, that webinar is also going to be a great opportunity to ask expert instructors specific questions. It also is the opportunity to earn continued professional education or CPE if you attend the webinar. And I mentioned that the webinar is going to be held in two weeks. That's Friday, March 19th. 
I'll also include a registration link in today's show notes and tweet out as well that date. We also have another resource, our tax and bond handbook. Our tax and bond handbook is available in print and digital editions. And the purchase link for that is also in today's show notes. So with that as a background and some resources for clients to learn more, if they don't choose just to reach out to you directly, Dirk, I wanted to kind of move beyond and dive into the heart of our discussion. And that has to do with why are we seeing a steady rise since 2016, and sort of more notably, why are we expecting to see or potentially be, are we in the midst of a surge in the use of this financing structure? There hasn't always been a heightened demand for this combined uh, financing structure. So the question becomes, uh, why do you think we're seeing this higher demand over the last few years? And why are we expecting this uh, surge? That's a great question, Mike. And, you know, I think there, there's a lot of reasons that we're, we're kind of seeing this surge, you know, leading up to the 4% uh, minimum tax rate. You know, I think going forward, the, the, the biggest reason that we're going to see this surge is, is because of the minimum of 4% floor. You know, historically, 4%, the 4% tax credit rate would float from month to month. And listeners may have noticed I called it the 30% present value tax credit because it's the rate is based on 30% present value of the credit discounted using the long-term and mid-term AFR uh, or applicable federal rates. So this recently hit an all-time low of 3.07%. So again, that's 3.07% that the tax credit rate was just a handful of months ago. So now that we're at this 4% minimum rate, that's almost a 25% increase in, in the tax credit rate. So when we mentioned that this is an expenditure-based credit and, and those uh, credits are calculated based on the expenditures, well, if you have a million dollars and you take 3.07% of that, or if you take 4% of that, obviously you're gonna get a much, much larger number based on a 4% minimum rate. Now, the, the lead up to kind of this surge, one of the main drivers is uh, soft financing. And typically in a, a 4% transaction, you would have you know various sorts of uh, other sources of financing, not just the private activity bonds and the tax credit equity. So there are some states that are implementing a state loan housing tax credit, and that state LIHTC can be used in conjunction with the federal LIHTC. I know California, Georgia, Colorado, um, a lot of these states have very, very successful state LIHTC tech programs. And just recently, more and more states are either looking at or have introduced legislation for a state LIHTC. So that that only helps further fill that gap, that financing gap that um, you know needs to be filled as part of these transactions. Also, the CARES Act and you know, other legislation has, have, have increased some of the soft financing that's available. And really, when it comes down to whether or not you know, a 4% tax credit transaction can be completed, it just results on, you know, just depends on financial feasibility and financial feasibility is you have to have the uh, you know sources to match your uses. Let me actually ask you a percentage question. When you think about sure. sources of financing, when you think about sort of a 9% transaction where you go in and you apply for the competitive credits, I'm wondering if you could maybe share what you think of roughly as what percentage of project costs end up getting financed by the tax credit equity, knowing that not all your project costs are eligible for the tax credit, a subset is, but a substantial but rough, when you're looking at a 9% credit, roughly what percentage of the project is financed with the tax credit equity, knowing that the balance of the financing has to come from sort of hard debt and you know, debt you have to pay the mortgage every month, as well as other types of soft financing. And maybe compare those percentages, roughly speaking. I, there's all sorts of examples and they're very <laughs> wide. And many of our listeners will go, my deal wasn't like that. <laughs> but this is just 
kind of on average, and there isn't really no average, every transaction's its own uh, anecdote. But comparing that 9%, you know, percentage structure to a 4% transaction where, you know, you have a lower credit percentage. So what portion there, roughly speaking, is your equity, your tax credit equity? And then what portion of that ends up being approximately your hard financing, the debt that has to get paid, as well as what portion has to be made up to some type of soft financing? Sure. On a on a nine percent transaction, you're looking at somewhere between you know, sixty-five and seventy-five percent of the property is going to be financed by tax credit equity. Again, this will depend on uh, pricing and um, you know location of the property, but um, really, you know, sixty-five to seventy-five is is you know typically that that range. So you know you're looking at twenty-five to thirty-five percent of hard debt uh, on a nine percent uh, transaction. Now, on a four percent transaction. Um, prior to uh, the four percent floor, you would have maybe roughly thirty percent of of your sources would be tax credit equity. So thirty percent on a four percent transaction, sixty five to seventy percent, or sixty five to seventy five percent on a nine percent transaction. You can see there's a big difference in how much tax credit equity is financing that property. So you know there's really a big need for for other sources on a on a four percent transaction. Yeah, that was a great uh, summary, and hence that's where you know state and local and cash credits and other soft bonds can kind of come in and be paired with productivity bonds and four percent credits to fill that gap. In California, for example, for the last few years, I've passed five hundred million dollars uh, in state and local and cash credits to try to help fill that gap and provide more residential rental housing through productivity bonds. So let's uh, sort of move on now and talk a bit more about the four percent floor. That was a big get, if you will, and it was enacted as part of the Consolidated Appropriations Act of uh, 2021 that created this uh, 4% floor. And maybe you could tell our listeners two things. One, why do we call it a 4% floor versus a fixed? (laughs) Some people say 4% fixed rate, but it's not technically a fixed rate, it's a floor. And then secondly, discuss some of the significance of the enactment of this floor. So the 4% floor, we call it a floor because uh, the rate is still floating. You know, the IRS is still going to issue that floating rate uh, each month uh, based upon the calculation that I mentioned earlier. And that calculation, if uh, interest rates do increase uh, substantially, could generate a tax credit percentage that is over 4%. So for the time being, if it's under 4%, we have this 4% floor, but there is the possibility of the tax credit percentage going over 4%. Now, is it likely in the next you know, year or two? You know, may- probably not, but, uh, but you never know. That's never say never. Say, let's hope not. It'd be a pretty high <laughs> interest rate, a pretty high borrowing rate. But, uh, but like you point out, that is why it's a floor. And on the other side, as far as you know, what the 4% rate can do for transactions, I think the biggest thing that it can do is, is make transactions financially feasible that weren't previously financially feasible. If you have a transaction that you know, currently was penciling out at the 3.07, you know, maybe that transaction doesn't need as much soft financing and that can go to another project. But really where we see the big increase is going to be on projects that are financially feasible. And we run some calculations and and we look at what that could possibly mean. And we estimate that over 130,000 additional rental units could be financed as a result of the 4% floor. So again, that's 130,000 units over a 10-year period. And that is mainly due to projects becoming financially feasible you know, as a result of, of this 4% floor. 
We'll also see, you know, some uh, 4% transactions used um, in conjunction with other programs, such as the HUD Rental Assistance Demonstration Program. That had been used previously, but um, I think, uh, you know, state housing authorities or, or housing authorities should be, you know, looking at it. They're, you know, doing RAD conversions and utilizing this this 4% credit, uh, you know, to just you know, further leverage and, and increase the amount of production that can be done using this 4% credit. And I will just note in terms of the additional uh, unit estimate that one thing that the additional equity does is the additional equity means A, transactions become financially viable, that leads to more units. The additional equity also can free up other soft financing, as Dirk noted, to finance other properties to further leverage uh, the increase in units. The additional equity, though, also can be used to provide more amenities for a given development. It can provide the ability to rent at lower rents to lower income families because you have less uh, hard financing. It can also provide the ability to provide more services to tenants. So it really is a resource that can be used in a variety of ways. And every state allocating agency and every individual development will have to be weighing the pros and cons of which what their greater priorities are uh, in terms of how, in essence, this extra equity translates to benefiting tenants uh, on the ground. I'd also note that you know as more developments become financially feasible, more and more state agencies will have to spend more time identifying what their priorities are for properties financed through private activity bonds in combination with the 4% floor. In the past, there were a number of you know, acquisition rehab, so resyndications and the like being financed through the productivity bonds. In part, it was because new construction was really difficult to fill the gaps because the credit itself wasn't deep enough. Now, with the 4% floor, more of those new construction properties will become financially feasible. So there's definitely going to be an evolution over the coming uh, months and years as to how productivity bonds and the types of properties productivity bonds finance. So let's move into a topic that I teased at the end of last week's podcast. Uh, I mentioned that we're going to discuss the transition rules. I like to think of things in buckets or in groups. Maybe that's just my accountant nature. (laughs) When I think about the transition rules, I think of three buckets. I think of a bucket of transactions that do qualify for the new uh, 4% floor. That's one bucket. The other bucket is those developments we know do not qualify for the 4% floor under the new statute. And then there is this third bucket, and that's the bucket where we're not sure (laughs) whether or not they qualify. So if you could expand, Dirk, and share what the general rules are for each of the buckets and share with our audience the areas where IRS guidance is needed for clarification. Because our those that have transactions in the pipeline, and clearly every, when this passed, it's not as if you could say, you know, it only applies going forward in the rest, because every transaction, even if it's not going to be, you're not going to be applying for bonds for two or three years, virtually all these transactions are in process at one level or another. So we're really talking about transactions that are in process or at various stages of the development phase. And now we've got to decide where in the development phase do some projects end up not qualifying, others do qualify, and then there's this in-between area where it's unclear. Sure. And, you know, to to kind of start us off, uh, you know, I think we'll start kind of with what does the statute say? And kind of step one in the statute is that the building needs to be placed in service after December 31st of 2020. 
So that's step one. And then that's not really debatable there. You're either placed in service after December 31st, 2020, or you're not placed in service after December 31st, 2020. And I think listeners need to realize that acquisition rehab properties for purposes of section 42 are looked at as separate buildings, acquisition being one building and the rehab being another building. So you you could have an instance where maybe the acquisition was placed in service prior to 1231-2020, but the rehab is placed in service after December 31st, 2020. So place and service is definitely um, one thing that that you need to look at. Part two of this is uh, if you do qualify for the first one, you're placed in service after December 31st, 2020, uh, you either need to receive a LIHTC allocation after December 31st of 2020, or any portion of any building must be financed by taxes and bonds that are issued after December 31st of 2020. And those bonds would be subject to the applicable volume cap. So going back to Mike's analogy of of the various buckets, there are developments that clearly qualify for the 4% minimum rate. And that would be uh, new developments that are placed in service, both acquisition rehab or new construction that are placed in service after December 31st of 2020, and they receive an allocation or they have an issuance of tax exempt uh, private activity bonds in 2021 or after. So not much debate in that bucket. Those, Those clearly qualify. There's a second bucket where developments clearly do not qualify. And those are developments that were placed in service before December 31st of 2020, or if they did not receive that LIHTC allocation or bond or have a bond issuance after December 31st of 2020. So if you're if you receive a 2020 or 2019 uh, LIHTC allocation, or if all of your bonds have been issued before 2021, you most likely will not qualify or do not qualify for this minimum rate. Then we have developments in a third bucket. And there are questions regarding this bucket that need to be answered by the IRS. And the projects that are in this bucket have bonds issued that are in 2020 and may have bonds issued that are in 2021. And the question is, how do we treat uh, those transactions? Looking at the statute, it does say any portion of any building uh, financed by bonds that are issued after 1231-2020. But but there is some gray area here as to whether or not uh, having any amount of bond issuance in 2021 would qualify your project for the 4% minimum floor. You know, this is also an issue with drawdown bonds. Now, with drawdown bonds, again, you could have some bonds that are issued in 2020 and some that are drawn down and technically issued in 2021. And for drawdown bond transactions, developers that have this type of structure, um, you know, should be talking to their investors, should be talking to their counsel. And, um, but I think ultimately, you know, we are going to need the IRS to uh, weigh in and tell us whether or not these projects would qualify for a 4% floor. Now, the Litech Working Group, as Mike pointed out, did submit a comment letter uh, to the IRS kind of laying out all of these issues. And hopefully we will get a response shortly. I would just say that for me, the better reading of the statute, and I did appreciate, Dirk, by the way, that when you said, let's start with reading the statute, <laughs> <laughs> always the place to start. And as you noted, the statute does say, you know, any portion of the building being issued by any or being financed by any bonds issued in 2021. So as long as the building has not been placed in service before 2021, uh, it does appear that any additional issuance uh, in 2021 is eligible for the 4% floor. But as you noted, you know, it's not clear and there are arguments against that. So we do need the IRS to clarify 
that that is the proper interpretation or uh, clarify that it is not, or at least they believe it is not. So with that as background, I, once again, I would encourage everyone to go and read the Long Consulting Tax Credit Working Group letter on this topic, because it does kind of lay out some of the issues, particularly with respect to drawdown bonds, as well as you know whether or not getting a supplemental bond allocation for a project not yet placed in service would allow a development to get the uh, 4% floor, and as a consequence, build a, in a position to provide more uh, affordable rental housing. And as I also noted earlier, if you want to find that letter, easiest way is just Google Novogratic Working Group IRS 4%. So now let's turn to the broader equity market. Uh, there is going to be an increase uh, in long term tax credits generally available or annually newly minted, uh, if you will. Uh, what are you seeing in terms of equity pricing? Because that's a question we're getting from lots of clients. What impact is this going to have on equity pricing? And that's a great question, Mike, because we're only about two months uh, into having a 4% floor. You know, we're, we're seeing, uh, you know, some transactions being, you know, put together and, and submitted with the 4% floor. And really, when, when, when looking at pricing, I know one thing investors do look at is the losses that are also generated from the property. So the, the return is not solely based on the tax credits themselves, but there's also a component of, of pricing and of the return uh, that does relate to tax losses. So given that the tax losses for a given property would generally remain the same, even though you know the, we have a 4% Floor now, you know, we, we do expect to see some decrease in in the tax credit pricing for a four percent transaction. Now, lately, uh, you know, pricing has been uh, you know ranging from uh, you know eighty five to you know ninety two cents, you know, somewhere in in, in that area. And and you can also uh, check this out on our website. We do track uh, tax credit pricing um, on a monthly basis. But really, I don't think we're going to see kind of the the, the full impact of of the four percent floor in pricing for you know for a few months. Because really, you know, pricing also does come down. Uh, to supply and demand. And right now, there could be an increase in that supply, but there's still plenty of demand out there for the low-income housing tax credit. Until we see a large surge or until we get towards the end of the surge, you know, we may not see demand drop off if, if it does at all. And I would also just note that uh, with respect to equity pricing, that the difference here isn't so dramatic that it's easy to quantify any sort of natural reduction. Back when we had the tax bill in 2017 and the corporate tax rate went down, it was pretty easy to be able to calculate the impact when you ran a yield as to you know, how much equity pricing need to fall to keep yields the same. You know, here the difference is more about greater supply of tax credits, greater supply of transactions that are productivity bond in 4% as opposed to 9% and there's uniqueness there. You know, but it's going to be a little bit difficult to distill. Plus, over the sort of coming months, you know, investors also have to look at investments in low and tax credits versus competing investments. And when you see the 10-year treasury, you know, rising 70 basis points and, you know, alternative yields maybe rising, there's enough noise <laughs> that it's not going to be a, a simple determination as to what impact this had versus others. So I just wanted to, you know, make sure our listeners are fully aware of all the complexities that go in to uh, pricing these transactions. And I'll challenge it'll be to still out any sort of immediate impact, but clearly there is more supply. So all things being equal, uh, more supply should have a slight decrease in pricing, depending of course on uh, the elasticity of demand. 
So let's turn now to the state because we talked about the theoretical, the 30,000 feet, how the credit works and the rest, what developments may or may not be eligible for the 4% floor. But at the end of the day, you know, this incentive is managed at the state level uh, with the exception of New York City and Chicago where they're managed at the city level. But as a general rule, it's managed at the state or possession level. And there is this financial feasibility test that does ultimately go into effect where the, the states or the bond issuer a government agency has to identify a, first how the award process goes and uh, who's eligible for the 4% floor because a state or a governing body can always allocate less credits depending on the financial feasibility. So if you could share with the audience you know, what you're seeing at the state level uh, in response to, or the allocating agency level in response to this new 4% floor. I recognize it's early and I don't expect you to cover all 50 states <laughs> <laughs> and possessions and cities, but if you could just give a flavor uh, of what you're seeing out there, knowing that it's still evolving. We were definitely seeing an increase in demand for private activity bonds and the 4% credit. And you know, a lot of states do have this first come first serve process for private activity bonds. There, there's never been a, a real need to have rounds or a competitive process because there, there just wasn't much, you know, as much demand as there is for the 9% credit. Uh, but what I'm hearing now is that there are some states that previously didn't have a, a lot of demand. They're already, they've already allocated all of their private activity bonds for multifamily housing. And that was as of the middle of February. So there are states like that that are going to have to look at this and say, okay, do we need to go to a competitive process? Do, you know, do we need to have some type of scoring system um, rather than just this first come, first serve type of process? Now, there are some states that have had a competitive process in the past. I know California has, has rounds for their 4% credit and private activity bonds, just like they do their 9%. But really, the states that we're seeing have this uptick in demand. Um, a lot of those do have a state credit. Uh, you know, we mentioned the state credit uh, earlier, um, you know, having that additional funding source uh, to complement the 4% floor really does make a lot of projects financially feasible now. And well, I think we are going to see an up uptick, you know, especially in those states. Uh, I know I'd mentioned uh, Colorado, Georgia, you know, as being you know, uh, other states that do have those, those state LIHTC uh, programs. But there's actually a, a whole number of states. We actually have a, you know, a webpage that kind of goes through all the state programs, the state LIHTC programs. And I would say, check it out, see if your state's on there, you know, see if, if, if there's something that you can, you know, do to, you know, help your 4% transaction and, you know, fill that gap that we talked about, you know, that gap between um, the hard debt and the tax credit equity. This is probably a good time also for me just to note, you had mentioned earlier how private activity bonds can be used for a variety of sources, but this podcast is obviously about residential rental housing. So we're talking about that usage, but I just would note to our listeners that if you're in a state that has reached their quote, cap of private activity bonds for residential rental housing, you might want to dig a little deeper and find out how much of the annual volume cap of private activity bonds are being allocated to residential rental housing. And if it's not 100%, uh, then you might want to be arguing that more of that should go to residential rental housing. And I will note that residential rental housing is a really good efficient use of productivity bond because with it comes this extra credit. And many of the other uses, you don't get any leveraging at the federal resources. Here, you get these additional federal resources to the tax credits. So it's really an effective use of productivity bonds for residential rental housing as opposed to other uses. So you definitely want to be giving that some thought. 
So Derek, we've talked about how the 4% credit floor, you know, makes a number more developments financially feasible. And we've talked about you know, the types of developments most likely to benefit from the floor. We've talked about equity pricing, state reactions and the like. But what this, what really matters, what this is really all about is helping families looking for affordable housing. So maybe share your thoughts on how this is going to help families that are in need and are lacking affordable housing. Sure. And, you know, we, we'd kind of mentioned this before with our, uh, you know, unit production estimates, but um, I will just point out again that, you know, we are forecasting or estimating, you know, that at least 130,000 additional homes could be financed by this 4% floor. But in addition to that, you also have to look at, you know, the, the properties themselves. And if, if a property does have more equity or have less hard debt, um, you know, you can service lower income tenants. You know, a lot of these properties may, you know, be servicing tenants at the 60% area median income, you know, maybe that goes down to 40% or 30% because these properties don't have to service as much hard debt. You know, maybe there are more amenities, maybe there are more services that can now be provided just because, you know, there are more funds available for these properties. So I think the tenants, you know, should see changes like that within the 4% properties. They may not know they're in a 4% property. I don't know if you walked up to a tenant and say, are you in a 4% or 9% property that they, that they would know. I probably, you know, wouldn't know if I was a tenant. So, but uh, I think just, you know, looking at, you know, 4% transactions, there's just going to be more dollars now available to help tenants out and in, in, in service lower income individuals. Yeah, I think the uh, short answer is there will be more affordable rental housing. And it's just a question as to what makes up that more affordable rental housing. Is it more units? Is it more services? Is it more amenities? Is it serving lower income families at lower income rents? And obviously, it's going to be a combination of all of those. But it's really exciting at a time when affordable rental housing is so much in demand to be able to have this great additional resource so um, I'm sure we've got some developers listening, Dirk, who haven't used 4% privately bond financing structure before, and they're probably thinking, okay, this sounds interesting. Where do I start? So maybe you could answer that question for anyone listening thinking, well, where do I start? Sure. I, you know, I would reach out to an experienced LIHTC professional as early, as early as you can in the process. The process for a LIHTC transaction is much different than it is for a market rate development. You'll need to kind of set a game plan, get your, you know, get your team together, get your, you know, your attorney, your bond counsel, your, if you're doing a 4% transaction, uh, get your LIHTC accountant uh, on the line, you know, as well as doing, you know, a market study to make sure, uh, you know, that there is demand, you know, in the area that you're, that you're trying to service. I've been working personally with a lot of, of developers that are you know, looking at the 4% tax credit now as being very attractive. And we're helping them build out their models. You know, they have a market rate model that's great, that does everything it needs to do from a you know, cash flow and source and use standpoint. But again, there's a, a lot of things that relate to the LIHTC program that, that, that need to be in your model, such as, you know, LIHTC basis. We look at capital accounts, you know, things of that nature that, you know, you may not be thinking about, uh, you know, on, on your typical market rate deal. So when, you know, when looking at then, okay, who do I go to? Who, who will my partners be, you know, on this transaction? Uh, you know, we can certainly help out and, um, you know, pair developers with syndicators and just kind of help you put the team together. Because uh, really, it's about having a good qualified uh, LIHTC team that understands the program, understands the timelines, because there's a lot of deadlines that need to be met along the way and making sure that, you know, you're structuring a good financially feasible transaction. Also looking at each state, you know, each state is going to be different. Uh, as, as Mike pointed out, each state kind of has their own program as well as New York City and, and Chicago. Look at what we call the qualified allocation plan or the QAP. 
that's going to give you kind of the rule book at the state level and what the state is, is, is looking for in an application. So, you know, looking at, you know, the needs of your state, looking at your, your LIHTC team, kind of putting everything together, I think that's kind of a, a great place to start. Well, that was excellent, Dirk. I've said that a lot this podcast. <laughs> that's, <laughs> great. that's great. And it's definitely uh, run a little long. So I appreciate you uh, giving me the time. I don't think you originally budgeted as much time for this, but I really appreciate you sharing your insights with us today. It really has been a great overview of such a critical, affordable rental housing financing tool. Uh, And I know that we've really only scratched the surface. Uh, I have no doubt that many of our listeners will be tuning into our webinar on the topic in two weeks. Once again, that's Friday, March 19th. Uh, But in the meantime, until now and then, I would encourage our listeners to follow up as you encourage them uh, and just to reach out to you directly in terms of ways that you can uh, help them get started or uh, help them along the way if they've already started and to help them solve issues if they find themselves running up against some type of uh, issue. And as I also noted earlier, today's show notes uh, will include a lot of the critical information. We'll have Dirk's contact information, links to the March 19th webinar and the bond handbook, as well as the Long Company Tax Credit Working Group. I would encourage you, you know, if you work in the area of Long Company Tax Credits, to join uh, the working group. Uh, it really is a great way to share your view and have your imprint uh, on the implementation of the incentive and stay up to speed on what the newest developments are. And with that, I do want to you know, answer a question that you may also be having, which is what's on deck for next week for the podcast? Well, next week's podcast is going to feature my partner, Christina Apostolitis, and she's going to discuss income tax preparation for long-commencing tax credit equity funds. Now, during this uh, podcast, we're going to discuss some of the practical takeaways about changes related to partner transfers, navigating the various long-commencing tax credit COVID-related extensions, as well as this new rule on first-year credit calculation and how you get to look six months into the next year. So if you're a syndicator or a developer or an investor, I think this podcast will be of real use and the timing is right because right now we're in the midst of the tax preparation season. And some of these questions, we're still awaiting guidance from the IRS on to which Dirk's been very involved with the working group in trying to solicit uh, guidance from the IRS, but I won't go off on that tangent. So to make sure that you're notified as soon as that next episode's available and future episodes, of course, please subscribe to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast. You can go to novacode.com slash podcast to stream the show directly. You can also subscribe to Tax Credit Tuesday on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcast, Stitcher, and Radio Public. That's it for now. I'm Michael Novogratik. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik and Company, LLP. Archived podcasts are available online at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. You can find related links referenced in this podcast in our show notes at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast. Novogratik and Company LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.